Welcome to the latest episode of The Warden Current. My name is Thomas Overmeyer, and my co-host today is second-year MBA, Charles LaChapelle. We'll be sitting down with two authors of the weekly Climate Tech VC newsletter, Sophie Purdom, who is an early-stage climate tech investor, and Kim Joe, who is an investor at Energy Impact Partners. We'll be talking about what climate tech actually is, how it's different from Cleantech 1.0, and which areas within the space, as investors, they're most interested in. We hope you'll enjoy. Let's jump right in. Sophie and Kim, welcome to the Wharton Current. Thank you for joining us. A lot of our listeners will know you from the Climate Tech VC newsletter, which is fantastic and very insightful, but obviously that's not your full-time job. Would you mind spending a few moments talking about what you do for uh, full-time and kind of how you've gotten to the climate tech space? Kim, if you want to start. Yeah, sure. So full-time, I'm an investor at Energy Impact Partners, which is a venture capital and growth equity firm across North America and Europe. We're backed by a consortium of utility companies um, and invest kind of strategically across that whole energy transition sector. Um, So that's my full-time day job, but, you know, started Climate Tech VC about a year ago now. Um, back in March, kind of when the pandemic kicked off. Um, and it's it's definitely been a wild ride for the newsletter so far and for climate tech in general. Um, and happy to go into more detail around that. And I can pick up where Kim left off with that. So my name's Sophie and I came into this having started a climate tech business, which is called Kula Bio. And Kula makes a sustainable fertilizer using microbes. Um, and after stepping away from day-to-day operations there, I've split my time now between working with a whole suite of other companies on climate tech and ESG more broadly through a consulting shop um, and increasingly investing in early stage businesses as well. Lots of which, you know, Kim and I see some of those early trends in writing climate tech VC. Um, But, you know, excited about agriculture, like enabling industries like supply chain and HVAC and cooling, um, basically everything that layers on top of this idea of what do you do if you have unlimited, distributed, clean, renewable energy. Did y'all know each other before starting the Climate Tech VC newsletter or whose idea was that? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a funny story. Um, not sure how much detail I can go into it, but essentially, you know, I, I had the idea to start this new newsletter back in March when the pandemic started. Was in another job at the time that didn't really allow for too much kind of side creative outlets uh, and ended up, um, you know, finding Sophie through actually Carrie Krasinski, who's a professor of sustainable finance at Yale. I didn't go to Yale. I actually went to Johns Hopkins, but was uh, so, so a lot of like different connections there. He ended up suggesting I, I reach out to Sophie um, since she'd done a lot of work in the space, had a started Kula Bio um, about, you know, having her come come onto the newsletter and working on it together. And that's when it all really started. Harry is an OG in ESG or environmental social governance, and he knows everybody. So I consider Carrie a very, very close friend and really grateful to the space broadly for connecting me in the first place with someone like Carrie, who I've since worked on. Um, everything from pulling him in at Brown to teach course on sustainable investing to we wrote a book together on sustainable investing. And um, he's the first person I write Christmas cards to every year. We're 
really close. And another present he gave me was connecting, connecting Kim and I, which has uh, gone, I think, probably further, Kim, right, than we could have ever imagined. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And we've, we started remotely, but we have managed to meet up in person, socially distant and safely a couple of times since then. That's true, because you guys were apart for, in March, I'm assuming, during the lockdown. And how did you guys start the newsletter? Like, how was it hard to find an audience uh, or topics to write about? Like, how did that process came to be? Yeah, I mean, initially, my thought process was uh, the word or the phrase climate tech had really just started emerging. Um, hasn't obviously isn't as prevalent as it is today, but people were starting to say, you know, climate tech, it's not clean tech, but it's climate tech and like trying to explore what that means. And so I'd followed all these other newsletters like Axios Parada, Fortune Term Sheet, all these kind of generalist VC newsletters. And I was really curious about what was going on in climate tech. And there didn't seem to be a lot of um, publication or coverage around it. Um, you know, there's like green tech media, which is a whole separate other topic that is kind of blowing up today that, you know, we can also talk about. But yeah, wanted to create um, kind of just like a weekly newsletter update version of, of what term sheet and these other guys are doing, but for climate tech specifically, um, that was the initial thought process and, and it's definitely kind of taken more shapes since then. Absolutely, and I'd say as with any good entrepreneurial venture, right, it looked very different in day zero from what it looks like in present. And so we've tried to stay really close to our readers and we're pretty data-driven and look on the back end at who's clicking through into what and for how long are they spending time in these different places. and um, you know, uh, we do a little bit of A-B testing on things like our headlines and how that affects open rate and how we lay out the newsletter, number of emojis that we put in there, you know, we're constrained by the size of Substack issues and sometimes they'll get cut off in Gmail. So that's really our only parameter. And we've tried to flex a lot within that, but I'd say we've stuck with this, um, format of covering deals, right? So every week we cover all of the deals in what we're defining as climate tech. So that's, you know, public information, but proprietarily cut. Um, and then we cover a headline that we think is the most interesting single piece of news in uh, climate tech that week. And we dive deep into it, um, but try to keep it very pithy. Then we'll cover the rest of the news. And that's usually 10 to 15 bullet points in a single sentence summary of what are the main things that happened. Then we hit, um, you know, our kind of everything bucket is uh, our pop-up section, which is more clickbaity, but fun and relevant. And um, obviously we, we do news events, opportunities, and then the meat of the newsletter, which um, has, has taken us a lot of different places is the feature where we'll have conversations with great folks like, you know, Mark Tursik, who is on this podcast as well, um, as well as other investors and operators. And increasingly we're running more market maps or deep dives into specific spaces where we highlight founders, um, but try to lay out a value chain of, of really what's going on in that space. So for example, CCUS, so sequestration technologies or soil carbon or climate risk, um, and try to tie that to make it really timely with some piece of news that happened in the week. And so look for us to be breaking more of those Q and A's with hot founders or hot companies or, or people moving and shaking in real time. Now that we're starting to, uh, kind of get access to break piece of, pieces of news behind the scenes. And, and I guess taking a step back a little bit, um, what's the difference between you know, climate tech and clean tech and why did you specifically choose to, to focus on climate tech? We're gonna put a feature out on this actually okay. in uh, 
uh, two weeks time, but a little, it, plug. <laughs> a little plug, it kind of begs the question of what's different this time. Um, and we're happy to go into our headlines on that, but I would, I'd say, um, clean tech, uh, has historical precedents, right. Which is often talked about in a boom and bust kind of framing, but I would say all credit to, to clean tech 1.0 for giving us this incredible baseline of extremely cheap and accessible renewable power, right. Is really what we came away with, um, low solar and wind prices. And then, um, Kim, do you want a tag team on like the kind of what's different this time piece for, for yeah. climate tech? Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, definition wise, I think the, the major difference for me between clean tech and climate tech is just climate tech is more centered around anything that is impacted by climate change. So there's a bit broader of a mandate there, whereas clean tech was a little bit historically more focused on like clean energy technologies, things like that. I see climate tech as being a little bit broader. There's a lot of different sub-verticals there. So ranging from, you know, clean energy is obviously a very key pillar, but there's also food and ag and what are there, what are the implications there for climate? Um, there's, you know, industrials, transportation, um, climate risk, like buildings, like pretty much every kind of sector of the economy you can think of will and is being impacted by climate change. And there's lots of little like pockets there where, um, you know, climate tech plays a role. So, you know, climate tech is pretty much like almost everything, you know, you can think of. Um, but then with this main focus on how do we mitigate climate or adapt to climate change um, within that kind of sector and, and what are the technologies that can be applied or, or startups? The way I like to think about it, and maybe this isn't right, but climate tech is focused on emission reduction which is obviously the main cause of, of climate change. Whereas clean tech is more, like you said, clean energy focused and environmentally focused. So clean water, for example, I would, anything related to that, I would see as more clean tech than climate tech because it doesn't have much to do with emissions, but the Venn diagram overlaps a lot. There's a, there are a lot of similarities between the two. Yep, yep. Yeah, and I don't think there's any like totally right or totally wrong answer. There's no like handbook on, on what everything is, but I would agree with that. And I think uh, maybe adding to the emissions profile, it's also just, um, there's also a lot of adaptation technologies now too, like climate resilience, climate risk that I'd say fall within that bucket as well. So your website, and obviously you'll have the, the focus on it in a couple of weeks, as you said, but you also have an overview of kind of the, the mental model that was introduced by uh, Shale Khan, I think, where it's understand, mitigate, and then deal with it. Could you walk us through the three different parts and what maybe high level what's included in each of them? Yeah, sure. And totally, total credit to Shale for for coming up with the for the tweet. We just saw it, and and uh, candidly too, I work you know super closely with him. He's he's the partner I work at with out in San Francisco, and he's he's incredible, and I think definitely a leader in this space. So we basically just took what he tweeted about and really tried to flesh it out and obviously had his eyes look over it too, just to make sure we were getting his point across. High level, you know, step one, understand it. Um, you first need to gather all the information and, and generate the generate insights about our planet, about earth um, and how that's changing from emissions. So first, um, you know, there's, there's this huge trend right now of um, satellite data, drones, sensors, all becoming a lot more prevalent and a lot cheaper, which makes it easier to collect um, Earth data. And that's going to be the first step 
to understand what exactly is our exposure to climate change, you know, in our buildings and our transportation, et cetera. And there's a bunch of startups that are doing that, either from the data collecting side or the data analytics and insights side. So that's understand it. Um, two is mitigate it, which is obviously, you know, the huge chunk of where we focus on in climate tech is we're still at a point where we can kind of do something about it to mitigate, you know, the effects of climate change. So that's where um, I think Shale had like another kind of sub framework for looking at this, but, you know, across the sectors of electricity and heat, which is where energy impact partners mostly plays agriculture and land use, industry, transportation, buildings, those are kind of some of the main um, emissions intensive sectors and then breaking that into a value chain, which is how Sophie and I look at these market overviews is, you know, there's a whole sector, but what are the different kind of, what's the value chain look like in terms of decarbonization? Um, so I think the example we put in our newsletter was, you know, let's hone in on transportation and electric vehicles specifically, what is the value chain framework look like here and that's you know production so stopping emissions at the source um, you could group for example battery makers like Quantumscape and solid power in that then there's delivery which is how like kind of like the logistics piece of this how are the goods and products going to actually be delivered to the customer for EVs you could see this as kind of like the EV charging and, and fleet management software so Vericity is you know one of EIP's portfolio companies that's um, working on the fleet management side um, and then there's consumption. So I think that one's a little clear in terms of the EV space. It's all of the um, EV OEMs like Tesla, Rivian, Lucid Motors. Um, and then there's this other kind of piece called the accelerant, which is an enabling layer that can accelerate, uh, quote unquote, the, the kind of consumer adoption of, of this technology. And then and then the last chunk of the of the mental model is just deal with it or honestly adaptation. Um, what do you do when it's already too late? And obviously for some geographical locations, for some industries, it is a little bit too late and it's more about climate resilience, adaptation and incorporating climate risk rather than just mitigation. So there's a lot of resiliency startups out there like One Concern that's working on this, um, InsureTech, and that that sector, unfortunately, is probably just going to continue to rise as as the time bomb kind of ticks down. And you guys mentioned a couple of times clean tech uh, 1.0. For for the benefit of our audience, what do you mean by that? And and how how has the industry changed over the past you know 20 years since the early 2000s and the the boom and bust of that of that space? You bet. We have a emerging thesis on this. <laughs> Kim, I. Uh, do you want to take through it? Tried to get you to do it before. Now we can actually do it. <laughs> so it starts with the solar and wind, right? Costs being driven down with these technology advances. Um, and the reason that that really matters is because then there's low need for less capital intensity on these additional climate technologies that layer on top of that, right? So just like it's um, easy for two folks to get together and start a tech business today because you've got AWS and you know don't need to host a server in your literal basement and you don't need crazy legal fees to get started. Um, similarly, our premise is that climate tech sits on the back of clean tech because of these uh, decreasing costs of renewable electricity um, and that being really fundamental. Um, and within that, besides solar and wind, batteries as well as a essential technology kind of driving the cost curve down. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the primary ones is just renewables. And it's not only obviously similar to the AWS model that Sophie said, but it's just really demonstrating a precedence for clean technologies to be able to get to widespread adoption and really scale down that cost curve. So just kind of like a positive example to an and exit and success story to watch in climate tech. And then one of the I think one of the other big drivers that's different this time is just the level of both international climate um, policies and commitments, as well as corporate level commitments. And those two in tandem, I think, are really, really key to this you know, new wave of, of climate tech innovation. So from the international level, seeing multiple countries like the EU, China, Korea, Japan, all in 2020, um, committing to net zero by mid-century. Obviously, Biden getting elected on this, you know, almost two trillion dollar climate plan um, is also super exciting. And then from the corporate level, um, which is definitely new this time around and, and different, I think, from clean tech 1.0, seeing large corporates like Walmart, um, oil and gas majors like BP, financial firms like Morgan Stanley, Stanley all tripping over each other to commit to carbon neutral or even carbon negative within the next couple of decades. And, you know, these are commitments they're making very publicly and, and we'll need to figure out a way to get there. Um, and, you know, tech companies that are really high margin, like Microsoft, Amazon or Stripe, are even taking it a step further and actually adopting, being the initial adopters of super expensive carbon negative technology and actually trying to remove carbon rather than just you know get to net zero so those are super promising from kind of the top down perspective and generating a lot of demand for better and and more impactful climate tech and it matters when those corporates put up that shingle right saying that they're willing to pay it de-risks all the way down out of the lab level, right? So now VCs see that there's a customer on the horizon, so they're willing to maybe fund it a little bit earlier. Um, you go over a couple valleys of death that otherwise might be holding some of these important innovations back. Um, but then one other major major way that the landscape today is different from it was how it was in clean tech 1.0 is just the pure volume of institutional investor interest in funding ESG. And that capital is flooding the market. Um, and so, you know, I, I would posit that there might even be a mismatch of there being too much ESG supply versus like actual um, true ESG targets at the moment, but definitely a much rosier place to be in than when it was in reverse only 10 years or so ago. So, you know, those are kind of the main points of the technological advances, the international and in the U.S. national, like really serious climate policies, level of ESG finance, the corporate commitments, um, and then there actually being some winners to look at. But the piece that shouldn't be forgotten is we can feel it now, right? Like climate's tangible. We feel it, you know, uh, when our our basements flood or when our house lights on fire or, um, you know, when you go outside and you're breathing in, in smog, uh, it's tangible. And I think that's causing a lot of people and individuals to act on and vote on and um, pay for climate tech. 
And, and clearly yeah. the, the landscape has changed, uh, but has the investment strategy at the VC level changed as well? Uh, are you still looking to invest in kind of capital intensive projects or have you kind of shifted the way you think about investments? Great follow-up question. Yeah, I think the VCs have adapted as well in a, in a few fundamental ways. So one is um, there's uh, there are now dedicated specialist funds, right, who have formatted themselves appropriately to invest in this stuff, meaning they are they are on like seven to 10 plus year um, cycles as opposed to five to seven to match the um, length of time that it takes to mature these deep climate technologies. They're also serious about where their own LPs come from, right? So making sure that's like patient aligned capital, uh, being very clear about not funding science risk and again, driving down like the capital intensity. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and obviously a little biased because we're co- I'm coming from energy impact partners, but I think what's also really different this time from the venture perspective is there's a lot more corporate and kind of strategic investors coming in, which is going to be really critical because climate tech isn't the same as, you know, investing in enterprise software where it's like very scalable, easy to deploy. A lot of it is hard tech. And a lot of it depends on the end customers, which are oftentimes utilities, industrial type companies being willing to rip and replace what they have already existing and and replace it with this new kind of quote unquote climate tech type of technology. And you're going to need to see um, corporates. So we're seeing a lot of kind of oil and gas majors spinning off, you know, venture arms that have uh, that are investing in, in climate tech. We're seeing uh, you know, like everything ranging from iron ore producers to, um, you know, consumer companies to Stripe to Microsoft, all of these corporates that are have now uh, either, you know, structured organizations investing in climate tech or um, just a strong kind of strategic interest in this space. And then EIP, for example, we were backed by a consortium of utility companies who are also really interested in understanding what's like this new frontier of technology that's going to lead the energy transition looking like. Um, so yeah, just just a lot more kind of creative vehicles, I think, needed to invest in this space rather than just in clean tech 1.0. A lot of it was driven by more just generalist venture investors who had a tough time really understanding this space, especially in the energy world. It's very, very, uh, I'd say it's like, it can be difficult to understand if you haven't been in the in the energy industry for a while. So, you know, I'd say it's what Sophie mentioned. And then addition to that, having more strategic capital and having more expertise um, within the vertical of climate tech that you're investing in. Would you say that the exit strategies for VCs has changed too? I mean, obviously, first thing that comes to mind right now are SPACs, everyone's favorite topic, which are taking companies without any revenue but with potential hockey sticks success stories of making billions of dollars a couple years down the road, uh, but taking them public. And then we'll see over the next six to 12 months as they, the first couple of SPACs have to start showing quarterly earnings, how, how profitable they actually can be. But so we didn't have that during clean tech 1.0. Do you see any other differences there? Yeah, I mean, on the, I have a lot to say about the topic of SPACs for sure. I think all the kind of investors, cl- climate tech or not, honestly, are, are definitely thinking about this new vehicle that's emerged. I'd say, I'd say just to set the stage, right? Like the, the largest difference between SPACs and IPOs, um, 
we all kind of know the definition of what a SPAC is. It's like a shell company taking a target public. But the major difference is that SPACs are inherently forward-looking. So instead of relying on historicals to um, come up with a valuation, you can, you know, come up with a valuation based off 2024, 2025 financials, which you would not be able to do with a traditional IPO and honestly lends itself to inherently a frothier type of market. Um, I think the pros to SPACs is that they're providing an alternative off-ramp for these climate tech companies, which are oftentimes, like we mentioned, longer time horizon, more capital intensive. Um, and, and it's oftentimes difficult for you know traditional venture investors to be putting money into this space, just given those factors and, and some of the valleys of death there. Um, and so having a SPAC, which can, you know, for at least high quality climate tech targets, provide an infusion of capital that's necessary for a lot of this deep tech, hard tech type stuff. That's super helpful. And that's um, a great alternative to all the existing options, which is either, you know, you do a traditional IPO, which doesn't really make sense for most of the climate tech companies um, until like they're super late stage, probably like a Tesla, or you get acquired and up until at least this year, acquisition multiples in at least the you know energy electricity space have been super low. So it's exciting from that perspective. Obviously, the con side is it smells like a bubble. It kind of is a bubble. Um, there's a huge supply and demand imbalance right now for SPACs. So a ton of SPACs, SPAC IPOs in the ESG energy transition space that are all looking for targets and have to find them within two years. And then a dearth, I guess is the word, of super high quality targets that should be mature enough to be going public. And we're seeing that, you know, I think I, I'm keeping kind of like a tabs on the space, but I think around 30% or a third or something crazy like that of the um, announced back mergers are pre-revenue this year. And so to have a pre, have this many pre-revenue companies going public definitely definitely points to signs of, of a bubble a little bit. I think there'll be a shakeout, but I don't think the SPACs are going to go away. I think it's just going to, you know, be your typical hype cycle where, where you kind of see the lower quality ones shake out and hopefully the higher quality ones will remain. And, and who's buying these SPACs? Like who, what, where's the appetite coming from? Is it um, pension funds or mutual fund managers that are buying up, you know, these stocks on the public markets. Uh, it seems like the risk profile isn't really suited for that type of investors, and it would be more suited for, you know, for VCs, uh, especially with the long time horizon. Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's, I think it's like a lot of times it's retail investors. Um, there's also institutional investors. So. There's this new, so for, for a lot of these SPACs that are de-SPACing, they usually raise, um, the target also raises money in a pipe, private investment in public equity. And that's probably like a hundred, couple hundred million usually, depending on the target's capital requirements. But oftentimes there is when you'll see institutional investors come in, maybe strategic investors as well. Um, but then once they go through the de-SPACing process, obviously the whole point of a SPAC is that anyone can invest. It's not just venture money. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, like, shouldn't this be just venture money um, playing into a lot of these pre-revenue companies? That's what venture money was intended to be. Um, but, you know, that's why this SPAC vehicle can sometimes lead to a bit of frothiness when you have a lot of 
public investors able to deploy their capital into companies that maybe they don't have uh, as much experience investing in. So lends to, you know, a bit of the bubble right now. I would also just say though, there's only that venture capital is only so big and and I guess the silver lining to to allowing everyone to invest in these types of companies is you are able to deploy a lot of capital into this space, which on the positive side can be used to actually building out these technologies to the extent where they wouldn't have been able to if they only had venture funding access. And then on the negative side, you know, there's the kind of bu- bubble trend going on right now. Yeah, I think I, I think the public markets, you know, in some ways have been sheltered for too long and now have so much cash on hand that they want to deploy in places that we're seeing, um, you know, feistiness crop up in Robinhood and other places. And frankly, if there are, there will always be a flight to value, right, in anything that's frothy or bubbly. Um, I'm glad, though, and I think it's definitely a positive overall that public type investors can now join these SPACs and access true technology innovation in a space where assuming best, you know, best possible world, these are game changing, world changing technologies that will fundamentally reshape economies, right? So I'd rather that probably than GameStop if you, uh, <laughs> if you held me to it. <laughs> I want to switch gears quickly because we could and probably should have a whole episode on, on SPACs in the climate tech space, but um, Kim, when you were talking about the climate tech mental model, the third stage, kind of the deal with it, climate resiliency stage, something I've been thinking more about and should be getting a lot more attention is that the consequences of climate change are or have been felt and are being felt by a lot of marginalized communities, um, especially those that live in coastal regions, or if you think back to Hurricane Katrina, Ninth Ward, areas that don't have access to a lot of capital and don't have access to a lot of kind of the the climate crisis prevention methods. Is that something that in your role or both of your your roles as investors, you look at that you're looking at companies that are either actively trying to fix that or that's part of their thesis? How do you think about that? Yeah, I can quickly kick off. I mean, um, we as Climate Tech VC honestly should and are trying to do a better job kind of covering diverse voices, especially because as we know, climate change isn't going to affect everyone equally. It's going to affect marginalized communities significantly more. Um, but then there, you know, policy, technology, all this, all, all of the above, above isn't going towards protecting those communities as much as others. So definitely a huge challenge that, you know, the kind of environmental movement faces, we at Climate Tech DC are trying to do a better job portraying as well. I will say, um, you know, from, EIP's perspective, Energy Impact Partner, that's definitely something that we're focusing and honing in on. Can't share too much on it, but um, I'll just say like, we're definitely trying to allocate a lot more capital towards investing into diverse founders and, and um, you know, focusing on bringing that sort of environmental justice and diversity voice into the climate tech VC space. And, and often diversity has been talked about as like you must hit a quota or um, it's seen as a uh, like a tax in some ways, I guess. And I just reframe it as like an incredible opportunity to empower and enable people who want access to this and feel this firsthand and um, will be leading forward and leading the companies and leading the policies right around around climate. And um, I think this is pretty well done by 
groups like Elemental Accelerator, where they in there, once companies have been de-risked a little bit such that they're at their, you know, first major or second pilot stage, um, Elemental is a really thoughtful job of locating those hypergrowth companies in places where there's a demand for more jobs or um, for access to better food systems or access to um, more resilient energy infrastructure. And, and it's just, you know, obviously it's the right thing to do, but it's also very clever and shrewd business decision of those people often need it the most and can help grow your company and, and just increase resiliency together, I suppose. So um, thinking about diversity as a, as a strength and enabler of, of climate tech is, is really core. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Maybe adding on to that, are there any other subcategories within clean tech that you think are not getting enough attention or anything else that's especially attractive over the next six to 12 months that you'd want to invest in? Yeah, I'll go for the underinvested stuff first, right? Like there are still, um, if you match up where we need innovation and where uh, uh, emissions come from versus investable opportunities, there is still a mismatch often between that. So things like um, CCUS, right? So carbon capture technologies that rely on voluntary um, carbon offset purchases often in order for their business models to work. That's tricky for some um venture capitalists to, to wrap their head around and get confidence on. And thus you're seeing a lot of these important innovations fall into the quote valley of death where they have something that works, but they can't scale it because they can't get capital for that first kind of risky build out or project. That's a great example of an underserved um, uh, opportunity where additional types of capital could come in. Um, everything from philanthropic fund pieces like Elon Musk's $100 million prize for the best at CCS tech to um, policy incentives to, um, you know, all sorts of additional types of capital. So um, VC is not, you know, VC, like Kim said, is a small asset class and it is not suitable for everything. Um, I think with lots of innovation and business models, clever entrepreneurs will, will figure out how to line that up more and more. Um, uh, but CCS is one that stands out. Lots of ocean CDR, so um, carbon dioxide removal technologies are tricky and risky and challenging. Anything that generally crosses geographic boundaries, right, whether in oceans or across states or nationwide is, is tricky and difficult to roll out. But then to bring it down closer to home, like places that I'm personally interested in, a lot of action happening in regenerative agriculture, um, not just on what's happening in the farm, but also what's happening in the supply chain also on verification measurement and reporting technologies for either you know carbon market specifically or for bringing more resilient products to market those are two places that I spend a good amount of time looking yeah totally agree with Sophie there on um, you know there's a lot of gaps that VC might not necessarily be able to fill that um, I guess the harder tech side of climate tech uh, definitely needs more capital funding for given all the capital intensity. One sector I think is particularly interesting where there isn't really a clear pathway to decarbonization and super broad, but you know, industrial. So if you think about metals, cement, um, these sort of, you know, hard to decarbonize sectors, there's a couple solutions there that are exciting. So EIP just announced an investment in Boston Metal, which is trying to decarbonize the steel making process through electrification. 
So, you know, super exciting company doing that, but I'd say within just like this broad industrial segment, there are Definitely could be more um, founders and innovation coming in, just given, you know, food and ag, there's a pathway there. Electricity, there's a pathway there through renewables. But then for steel, for cement, for a lot of these like chemicals or like weird industrial sectors, there isn't really a clear pathway besides potentially hydrogen, potentially applying like, or putting on like a carbon capture plant or something. Um, but other than these broad ranging solutions, there really isn't anything. Um, so I think there's, it's kind of open to interpretation there, what's going to happen within these uh, weirdly niche industrial sectors that take up a lot, a lot of carbon emissions. Thanks for sharing that. Charles, anything that you want no, to touch on? I guess on? As, a, as good as a point as any to, to wrap it up. Thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Really appreciate the, the discussion. I think it was definitely informative for me. I learned a ton. So I'm sure people listening will also appreciate Amazing. Thanks. Yeah. We love our reader generated content at Climate Tech VC. So if folks are listening and they have thoughts on deals or news or trends or themes that we should be covering, then sign up for Climate Tech VC, which is on Substack and uh, send your thoughts our way. Absolutely. I hope people will. Thanks for joining the Wharton Current. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sophie and Kim. You can find the link to subscribe to the Climate Tech VC newsletter in the show notes. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of The Warden Current and let us know if there are any topics you would like to learn more about on the show. Thanks for listening.